You're listening to FluxPod. My name is Matthew Perpetua. This episode features the writer Sean T. Collins, who is a very good friend of mine. We did a uh, playlist recently. Uh, the two of us collaborated in curating this playlist about industrial music. It's called Burning Inside. And in this episode, we're basically going to do like a live liner notes for that playlist. Uh, so if you know a lot about industrial music, this should be entertaining. If you know nothing, this should be educational. It's a good episode. Uh, there's actually another episode featuring Sean coming up, but that is going to be a Patreon exclusive episode. And that one, we, we just kind of shoot the shit about a whole bunch of stuff. Um, some really good thoughts about Aerosmith happened to be in that one. Of all things, we just landed on that for a little bit. But if you want that episode and all the other uh, Patreon episodes, uh, you got to pony up $5 a month. Uh, Patreon.com slash Fluxblog. And uh, $5 a month will get you four to five uh, extra episodes per month of this podcast. And uh, I try to make them all good. And they're all going to be good. And uh, that episode with Sean is really good, as is this one. And let's just get into it right now. Uh, Sean T. Collins. Sean, tell the listeners who you are and what you do. My name is Sean T. Collins. I'm a writer, primarily a television critic. I write for the New York Times, Rolling Stone, Vulture, Decider. I write about music for Pitchfork now and then. I'm just a freelance writer, baby. (laughs) Living the life. (laughs) Uh, Sean and I made a playlist called Burning Inside uh, a couple months ago. Um, and it's kind of a, a survey and introduction to indu- industrial as a genre. And uh, we, we made it collaboratively and pretty quickly, I think. Yeah. Uh, we just kind of did it over uh, Gchat. And uh, I'm pretty p- proud of it. I, I think it's one of the better uh, things that I've made for Spotify and I guess Apple Music. I always think of them as Spotify first because that's where they're made. Um. But we're going to try to do a thing. We're going to do a kind of a, a live to tape liner notes for this thing. So to give people context for this, but also just kind of talk about industrial music and you know its context and things like that. So I think a good place to start with all of this is, Sean, as a person who is a very big industrial fan, a person who grew up with this music, how would you describe to a layperson, what this is and what its appeal is. It's very black music. It's music for people who wear all black and has kind of a darkness to it. Um, there's obviously a very heavy electronic element to it. It depends, you know, it kind of goes in several different directions. There's industrial that sounds more experimental. There's industrial that sounds more metal, but I think it's the sound of people reckoning with societal decay and collapse and people who are very unhappy with this. And it has its obvious antecedents in punk and it kind of grew out of that by virtue of growing out of goth to a certain extent. Uh, it kind of speaks to like an aggressive unhappiness with how things are going. 
Right. As opposed to kind of like, a, there's other genres that speak to like a kind of a passive uh, depression. Right, right. Yeah, no, this is very active music. A lot of which you can dance to, which is a big part of it as well. Um, yeah, it's very, very physical. I would say the electronic element of it, especially at the earliest stages, is, you know, once you start getting... Uh, this electronic uh, equipment, these various keyboards and sequencers and drum machines and so on. Uh, and they start becoming, you know, somewhat wi- widely available in the early 80s. You basically have different genres figure out, well, how do we use these tools to do the kind of music that we do? And I think with industrial, it's the wing of people who are like, oh, man, we can make the f- most fucked up noise with this stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we we can make something like really harsh. We can make like beats that are just really abrasive and uh, like po- like really leaning into the mechanical elements of it. Hence the name industrial, right? It, yeah, to make it to to be like no, this is machine music, and not necessarily in the more kitschy way that Craftwork uh, did. Yeah, I mean the the term industrial stems at least as much from the sort of socioeconomic circumstances of the people who pioneered it, like let's say in Manchester with Robin Gristle, it's an industrial town. And, you know, I can't remember who coined the, the slogan industrial music for industrial people, but that was sort of the thinking going in that this is music that reflected that kind of, you know, the, the, the English equivalent of the rust belt and a, a dismay at how things are going. And I think there's an aggressiveness that carries through for the most part, whether you are like Throbbing Gristle and you are on the experimental end of things and Songcraft is kind of an afterthought, although they do have some tunes, I have to say, uh, as opposed to like, like, like Hamburger Lady. That's a real banger. <laughs> that's my like, I always try and sneak that in places where no one should be listening to Hamburger Lady. It's, it's one of the more like viscerally upsetting pieces of music I've ever yes. heard. Yes. It's, it's, and it, it, I think it's because there's this really uncanny alien quality to it. And uh, I, I've thought a lot over the, over the years where, you know, I guess it's kind of a, a kind of a Cthulhu thought, but if you were to actually come face to face with an alien, you would probably kind of be viscerally horrified to see something like, so like to you unnatural. And I feel like that song is kind of like that. Yeah, it's it's it, you feel like you shouldn't be listening to it, no matter how many times you've heard it, no matter how many times I'm like, 
I'm in the mood for hamburger lady and cue up hamburger lady. <laughs> There's still a, a, like a pervasive sense that this is something's wrong here. You, which is of course the point of the song. Do you remember the first time you heard that song? Like what the context was? I don't really think, cause it, it wasn't on any of the throbbing gristle records that I had when I was a kid or, um, you know, cause I got into, I, I kind of worked backwards from pig face to psychic TV to, uh, Robin Gristle via Genesis Peorage, who was a crucial figure in all three of those groups. And I think I only came to Hamburger Lady much later, uh, just on the internet, and just being like, wow, this is this is Hamburger Lady, all right? I, I do remember first hearing it. It was, in, uh, it was on WFMU. I can't remember what show it was, but I remember just hearing, like, what? It's like I'm not really actually that big of a, a music radio person, uh, but it really was one of those things where like, oh my god, what the hell was that? Yeah. And finding out what it was, and like, well, I have to, I have to get that, you know. So and then that's the era where it would have just been like firing up the soul seek. Yeah, yeah, it, it makes an impression, you know. I mean, I think a comparable experience is probably let's say like Frankie Teardrop. Oh yeah, it's a very very similar song. Right. In the sense of it's it's just unnerving. Yes. It's and like without fail. And there's you know the the Tom Sharpling had the Frankie teardrop challenge on the best show for a for a long right. time of, of just like people having to be completely in the dark listening to that all the way through <laughs> like the full like nine minutes. <laughs> it's punishing. I was reminded recently that Bruce Springsteen is a huge suicide fan. And I just love the idea of Bruce Springsteen, like listening to Frankie teardrop, just being like, this is the best. Yeah, I can see, you know, it's about a character down on his luck. I can, I, I, I can see where it would appeal to the boss. Oh God. Imagine if he had made a song, he was like, I've got to make a song just like this and I've got to actually outdo it. I've got it. Like, you know, Bruce Springsteen takes everything to the max. I've got to take this, this vibe to the max. And he made it something more horrifying, more like creepy than Frankie teardrop. I mean, he gets close to it in something like the state trooper, which I, I actually think is not entirely dissimilar in terms of like, yeah, the, the bleakness point. of its sonic palette. But yeah, it's, you know, I mean, he, it's like how he wrote Hungry Heart for the Ramones and then did it himself. Like, I'd be really curious, like, what is, what is Bruce Springsteen's suicide song? That's, that's, well, I think, he, I think he did some stuff like later, much later on in his career, but I can remember, I'm not as deep on him to know the song title. I know he's, he also covered suicide as well. He covered Dream Baby oh, Dream. So we start this playlist with, uh, you know, one of the the key artists in this genre, uh, Ministry. We start with Stigmata.
what's what's the what's the take on ministry, Al Jorgensen? Because he because he's kind of he, I feel like he kind of hits all of the different bases of the genre at different points. Yes, yes, because he started very goth, very Anglophile. You know, he had sang with a fake English accent. If you've ever heard. Every day is Halloween, you know, his sort of early quote unquote. It's hit. much closer to erasure uh, than the stuff that you would do later. Yes. Yes. Or Depeche Mode, things like that. And then over time, he got both more experimental and more metal, which is not necessarily the way that these things with these bands go. A lot of times, one side drops off as the other side increases. Uh, but by the time you get to Stigmata on the land of rape and honey which is the first of the kind of canonical let's say trilogy of ministry albums with the mind is a terrible thing to taste in psalm 69 that song stigmata is just a a, a huge monolith of a song in in the genre it is so so abrasive but also like so like headbanging yeah. you can get really into it because it's got like a, a like that it's got this kind of almost like batman theme song hook to it but there's just screaming and drill noises and industrial noises and and the thing that i always say is that when they made a video for it they actually used a more abrasive mix than what's on the record which is i i astonishing to me that they figured out how to do that and then it got played on mtv yeah. at the time you know the, the the shows that specialized in you know would eventually become to known as alternative music so St- stigma is not the first ministry my first exposure to them that was psalm 69 which i got for christmas in 1990 the mtv song for that is uh jesus built my hot rod there was that, and there was NWO. Uh, they had a video yeah, for. Yeah. Let's well, talk about um, NWO as well, because that that's also on the playlist. That was our selection from that record. Because I think there's three or four yeah. ministry songs on this, as well as uh, yeah. uh, a thousand homo DJs. Yeah, and Lard is on there. Palehead, like you know, Lardy did with Jello Biafra. Palehead, he did with. Uh, I'm, I'm just brain farting on the guy from Fugazi. Was it Emakai? Yes, yes. Um, that's him singing oh. on that song. I actually did not realize. So, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, that's you know, the dude was legit. If 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 he and Mackay is collaborating with you, you know, despite the sort of their very very different outlooks on chemical intake, let's say, <laughs> uh, they still got along well enough to make an EP. So yeah. good for that. Ian is kind of like beautifully, profoundly uptight. You know, it's uh, whereas uh, Al Jorgensen is like, if you look at a photo of Al Jorgensen now versus like when he was even like in this phase of his career, Al Jorgensen now looks. How would you describe it? It's like he looks like he's out of a Mad Max thing. Yeah, he he because there was a recent like picture facial of him tattoos and piercings. The whole his right. face is pure art now. He really doubled down as he went. Like there was no, it's like I was saying, I saw a recent, relatively recent picture of him with Trent Reznor, which warmed the cockles of my heart. But Trent obviously kind of, you know, cleaned up a little bit. And Al went in the complete opposite direction. Like Al, there's no way to look at Al Jurgensen and not know 
that you're looking at a musician on the fringes. Uh, would, he just has he just made himself an art project in a way that some other guys didn't. Yeah, and and also like I think a profoundly '90s musician. Yeah, I would say so. I mean, that was certainly his heyday, and it's funny because at the time, like I said, I got into ministry first. I got my first ministry record a few months before I got my first Nine Inch Nails records. I got broken and fixed at the same time. And so to me, Al was always sort of, not always, eventually I I kind of figured out what was going on a little better. But I always thought of Al as like the king of the genre. And when people would talk about Trent Reznor reverentially, I was like, what about Al Jurgensen? He just seems like a much, because he just seemed more, I think that it's, total and aggressive in his approach to I think the distinction is that Trent Reznor is probably the great he's both the great genius and the great rock star of the genre whereas Al Jorgensen I think you're you're correct he is the king of the genre that was that's the distinction there yeah I mean there'll there'll be people who quibble with that because of his sort of metal leanings but I I, that never bothered me at all Uh, I, I like metal so I had no problem with industrial music that sounded like metal and a lot of it did you know a lot of it i think we have two songs on the playlist uh godlike by kmfdm and then she watched channel zero by public enemy that both sample the same the same slayer song so there's a there's a through line of metal through a lot of this stuff yeah that is kind of where i was living and if you're coming in on nine inch nails i'm broken that is also like the most metal nine inch nails that's true. That's true. I mean, I'm sure I, I, I know that I saw and heard the video for Head Like a Hole first, and that's kind of what intrigued me. And then you had these new records out that you saw at Tower Records, and I was like, oh, I'll check this out. This yeah. So I, I, this, I think we should now uh, talk a little bit about Nine Inch Nails, because we're already kind of there. So uh, Nine Inch Nails is a very big deal to the both of us. Um, we, we actually went to see Nine Inch Nails a couple years ago. Uh, we've done it a couple times, but the most recent time we actually saw them play broken in full as, as a surprise. It was, it was not an announced thing. It was just like, you know, they played a new song and then they played uh, broken in full just to, just, just for the hell of it. I couldn't believe my luck, man. I couldn't believe it. I'm so pleased. <laughs> yeah. Cause I mean, uh, I saw the two nights in a row you were there for the second night. The first night was kind of more of a regular show, but I mean, there was some cool things in that. Like they played the perfect drug, which is very uncommon. Yeah. I missed that. I'm sorry about that. But, uh, yeah, yeah. But the, <laughs> I, I think about this, like, a, a like a lot, actually, the, that we saw in the span of a couple weeks, we saw broken and we saw steely Dan play all of gaucho. <laughs> And I feel like, like <laughs> in this kind of like cosmic way, uh, we both really love both. But I feel like I am more attuned to gaucho. I am a gaucho person and you are a broken person. And I think what that really comes down to is like how you process uh, bad things in the world. Whereas I think the broken outlook is is very idealistic and it is furious that things are not as they should be and i think the gaucho outlook is much more cynical and is a little bit more like yeah i know things are bad but you know i guess things are you know okay enough for me so let's just kind of roll with it yeah 
they're both these sort of artifacts of just studio wizardry too. Um, yeah, I don't think you really could get either of those now for sure. Yeah, I mean, I I remember one of my favorite things that I've ever written about music, just to toot my own horn, was that there's nothing like the guitar sound in Wish, the 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 really the lead song on Broken. It sounds like someone lit the air on fire. You know, it, it is just so. Uh, it just fills the whole sonic spectrum and it's, it's just really intense and, and, and the sound of things sort of rattling apart. Like it feels like the, the, the song feels so immediate that you're a little bit worried. Yeah, I feel like that song and March of the Pigs are two songs that on some level he must have understood. I am making something that is designed, like engineered to make people go crazy. Because yeah. there's just no hearing those songs without it hitting something primal in you. And if you see those songs live and they play those two pretty much every show, like I would say close to like 99% of all Nine Inch Nail shows will include both of those as well as uh, have like a hole in her. Those are the four that they always have to hit. Um, but those two, I think that, yeah, there's just something about the guitar tone and wish and there's something about like the drum pattern in March of the pigs that is just going to hit this part of you. That is like the part of you. That's just an ape that wants it to smash things, you know? Yeah. 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 The drum in March of the pigs, that, that kind of odd beat that it has where it feels like it's, it's looping before it really has a chance to finish. Yeah. I remember reading uh, something. I think it's something to the effect that there's, um, I think there's kind of like two overlaying, uh, drum uh, time signatures in that song. Yeah, I think that's probably. I, I think that's how that affects. I might be think, actually thinking of a different Nine Inch Nails song. I know that it's also. I know for sure that's the case in the somewhat damaged from the fragile. Like the mm-hmm. second part of that song has like I can't remember what the time signatures are, but they're overlaid to have this very odd tension. He's good at that kind of stuff. I mean, the dude's a virtuoso. Like that. That I think is a distinction that, I mean, there's, there's another thing that I really want to talk about with Trent Reznor that, that distinguishes him from say an Al Jurgensen, um, or even a Genesis Peorage, which is, uh, his sex appeal. Um, but his virtuosity, which I think has been made manifest on his bajillion soundtrack projects that have earned him all these awards. Like, you know, the guy, you know, he, he emulated Prince and I think for a reason, cause he was, a, he's a master of a lot of things. Yeah. And I think it's the there's something all encompassing about the Nine Inch Nails project as well, where it's it, it is like the full experience. Of course, I don't think uh, 
Al Jorgensen is quite as engaged with all of the visual elements the way that Trent Reznor is and the way that Trent Reznor worked uh, specifically with Rob Sheridan. Yeah, there's um, like Nine Inch Nails design has always been super, super tight. I mean, probably the best band logo of all time as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember when we saw that show, they project uh, the logo on the big screen behind them or in front of them as the case may be uh, when they play head like a hole to close the main set. And it's like the bat symbol, you know, it's like someone, it's like commissioner Gordon really needed someone to play like fucking kind of, I want to. So he, he sent up the nine inch nails signal. It's so iconic and, and, you know, almost super heroic. Yeah. And something that anyone can draw on their binder. That's for sure. You know, I can. I think that's crucial. It's like, can you draw this easily? And that's probably out of all of the, can you draw this easily? It might be the easiest because it really is like that really simple symmetry and a very basic rectangle. And yeah, it was always such a quest to get the, the two ends to, to be symmetrical and to be the same size. I had to work really carefully on that. That was, that was difficult, but I managed usually. Yeah. So I, I think we could we could probably just talk for like three hours just about Nine Inch Nails, but I think we should hit some of these other uh, less famous acts. So, um, sure. but let's kind of like move just kind of a, a slight deviation from Nine Inch Nails to talk about Pig Face. Pigface, pigface, pigface. Hooray. I get very excited about Pigface. <laughs> As you can hear. Pigface was like kind of an emblematic band for me. You know, for, first of all, what Pigface is, is an industrial supergroup that uh, revolved around Martin Atkins, who was briefly the drummer for Public Image Limited and equally briefly for Killing Joke and just knew a ton of people in the scene. So throughout its records, in and out float personnel from really every major band of the genre skinny puppy psychic tv nine inch nails kmfdm ministry and various ministry side projects like revolting cox um and then it, it would just you know by the end it was like uh fucking fast faster pussycat and shonen knife it was uh it was all over the place and I always used to say when I was in high school, 
that in my clique of friends who listen to alternative music, there was something called the pavement pig face paradigm where there was half of us listened to indie rock, uh, you know, sort of, of which pavement is sort of the emblematic band. And then the other half of us listened to industrial and pig face kind of slotted. And and this is absolutely true of you and I, I absolutely grew up on the pavement side of the divide. Nine inch nails was sort of like the, the, because they bleeded so much into the alternative landscape was basically my one industrial band growing up anyway. So yeah, this is a very real thing. I I don't know if it's something that people quite understand now, especially as a lot of these things kind of, uh, you know, they're, they're the context of all this gets blurred together. I think. Yeah, very much so, you know, and time, I always used to say I lost that fight, you know, that, that, that the sound of the the following decade plus was really, you know, indebted to pavement far much. So far much more. Really? Even with like the electro clash era and things like that. Cause that stuff's pretty like directly connected to industrial. I think just kind of, it's just the, the horniest end of it. That's fair. That's fair. The horniness of industrial is important too. It's not all hamburger lady, <laughs> you know. Um, you know, stuff like uh, Lords of Acid, for example, which is kind of on the fringes. Right. Depending they're, on who they're, they're coming up on the list. So let's just hit Lords of Acid now. Okay, Lords of Acid. Uh, that was a horny, horny band. Uh, virtually everything that they made a song about was about like, sex. Like this, throw out and some song titles there just to help people out. Uh, well, there's the Crab Louse, which is a song about the orgasmic uh, capabilities of um, crabs. <laughs> which is, okay. Uh, let's see. Let me think what else they had. I Sit on Acid is a favorite, um, which begins with a sing-songing voice saying, Darling, come here. Fuck me up the... And then it stops and it goes into the... And then the, the rest of the lyrics for the song is... Uh, sit on your face. I want to sit on your face. And on and on it went. Just real portal, um, you know? So yes, for real, for real. I mean, they, they were coming from like a Belgian dance, specific Belgian dance music milieu. There's real European um, eventually they there. Kind of, oh, yeah, yeah. And they kind of upped the aggression with, with Voodoo You, which I think is the kind of, no pun intended, the seminal Lords of Acid record. And that's famous for having um, a cover... Uh, that represents a bunch of female demons, ha- demons having an orgy in hell. That was drawn by the lowbrow artist Coop. Oh yeah, a swell wonderful guy. man. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I very closely associate them with Coop. Yeah, yeah, and I, I, he does too. You know, he he once said to me, he was like, "That fucking that album cover is going to be on my gravestone." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's probably his or, best or known. Just, you know, some, thing. One and of the devil ladies is anyway. Yeah, yeah, and it's and it's it's one of those things where like you see that album cover, and if you're in a certain mindset, you're buying that record, you know. Yeah, um, let's let's do another one. Let's do KMFDM. KMFDM, I feel kind of uh, I have a nice little story about that, which is I had a birthday party. I didn't even think people were supposed to bring presents or anything, but there's this one guy who had an older sister who was into cooler music than the rest of us. And he knew that I liked ministry and he knew that I liked nine inch nails. So he bought me angst that came FDM record angst. And, um, 
I fucking loved that album. That is one of my favorite all-time albums. I think it's their best. Uh, like Psalm 69 and like Broken, I would say. It, it has metal elements, but then... I don't know. It's just that the, the songwriting is really strong, I think. Um, the collaborate, you know, a lot, with a lot of these bands, there were kind of collaborative efforts where members would come and go. And I think it was probably the strongest lineup for them at the time. And um, they're very German. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> there's not really German. elaborating on that. <laughs> just, you, you, if you know, you no, know. No. <laughs> yeah. You know, the thing about KMFDM was, what does KMFDM stand for? And it stands for like a gibberish phrase that loosely translates for no pity for the majority. Uh, but, you know, the, the rumor was always that it stands for kill motherfucking Depeche Mode. Which when, which when you're in high school and you're, and, and or certainly for me, so much of my musical taste was defined by what I didn't like. And for some reason, I got like a wild hair up my ass about Depeche Mode and never, I couldn't stand them, really. I liked Personal Jesus Enjoy and I liked... Maybe? Enjoy the silence. undeniable yeah, hits. Like those are just undeniable. Yeah, exactly. They were undeniable. But I definitely denied the rest of the band as hard as I could for a long, long time. And I remember when when I feel you came out, which had kind of an industrial sound to it, and he had grown grown out his hair and grown out his beard. I was like, he's copying Al Jurgensen, which is a ridiculous <laughs> thing to think. But yeah. but that's where my that's where my mindset was. So came yeah, we, we've got a couple Depeche Mode songs on this, and they're kind of an outlier. Um, because they're they're Depeche Mode's kind of a lot of different things, but I think they there's a few songs that kind of fit in with this. I think we have "Walking in My Shoes," maybe a remix of that, um, which is from that record. Uh, the songs of faith and devotion. Mm-hmm. I would say about the things that put me through the pain I've been subjected to, but the Lord Himself always blood. Laid at my feet, forbidden fruits for me to eat. But I think your pulse would start to rush. Uh, 
Depeche Mode at their darkest is like, well, can you if you leech the um, the aggressiveness, the guitar attack out of industrial, that's kind of what you're left with. It's morose. It's very horny. It feels like late night music. I think it does fit in. You know, I was surprised to see that you had included some Depeche Mode on there, probably because of my background yeah. with KMFDM and being like, well, Depeche Mode doesn't yeah, I mean, fit well, in here. This, but this it does a, when you listen to it. That kind of uh, programming level. Like, it's not every Depeche Mode song. Um, and Depeche Mode would kind of fit in. On, that, I think that's the thing with Depeche Mode and probably the key to why they're one of like the biggest bands of their era is that they really fit in so many different boxes. Like if we made a goth one, they would be in the goth one. Like I've made alternative rock ones. They're in those. I've made like various like the synth pop. They would be in there. You know, Depeche Mode kind of just fits in a lot of boxes. Like even in stuff that where you'd kind of get into like a... Uh, like more hardcore electronic music, like IDM, there would be like certain like remixes and stuff. They're like, no, you would, you would definitely put them in there too. So Depeche Mode really just uh, mm-hmm. an interesting place in history. Just like uh, in, in some ways an underrated band today. This, you know, cause I feel like the, the, there's definitely like tons and tons of people who love them, but I don't know how much like that, like a lot of like younger people have an interest in them. I don't know. I hope they do. They have, I mean, they just have a lot of killer records. Violator, I think, is a stone-cold all-timer. Yeah, yeah, that's an all-timer. And And Songs of Faith and Devotion is terrific, and Songs of Faith and Devotion is also really good. And it does kind of, um, they bring out sort of a, a glamour and a romance to this kind of music that's maybe not all that present in sort of canonical industrial groups. You have it somewhat in Nine Inch Nails, obviously with songs like something I could never have, but that's, that's much more, that has much more in common with Depeche Mode than it does with ministry. Um, Let's, let's switch to meat beat manifesto. Meat beat manifesto is, um, I feel like I keep bringing everything back to Nine Inch Nails, but they were just a huge band for me as I was getting into this music. Right. And, but they are Nine Inch Nails. I think we just have to accept that they're kind of like all roads in this genre, either lead from or lead to Nine Inch Nails. Yeah. Or even, even, even in reaction against them, I think you could say, um, but like Trent Reznor was really kind of my gateway to a lot of different music off the top of my head, I listened to Pantera, Tori Amos, and Aphex Twin because of Trent Reznor recommending them. And that's like a pretty broad range of music. And actually later on, as you went on, I I started to listen to Pink Floyd because he was very into the wall when he made The Fragile. And I was like, okay, let me give fucking Pink Floyd a shot. You know, (laughs) he introduced me to a lot of things. And Meepy Manifesto was signed to his vanity label, Nothing Records. And I got their double album subliminal sandwich terrible title for a tremendous record a record of really substantial ambition and craft and you know uh, meat beat kind of there was like a sort of sample crazy mode for them early early on with the record storm the studio um that had some MCing on it too that they that stuck around for a while 
there's ambient elements to it. There's, uh, you know, sort of electronica elements to it. In a lot of ways, they're more a, a dance group than an industrial group. But the sort of, I think the agitprop kind of lyrical content and the willingness to take ideas really, really far and, you know, have a, have a, have a, have an LP, let's say that's like basically three different songs, but then each one runs through like four iterations that each is like more different than the last. Like they were, they were, they could be a difficult band and by band, it's really one guy. It's Jack dangers. But, uh, that, that was, that's a nine inch nails. That's courtesy of nine inch nails that I got into them. A, a very similar one, kind of on a similar wavelength, is consolidated. Consolidated is funny to me because my main uh, experience with consolidated was not the the really overtly political stuff that that made their name. It was a song that we included on the playlist. And I'm so glad that we did, called "You Suck," that they did with the Yeasty Girls, which is about uh, oral sex and. It was a song that just went around on people's mixtapes that you would make for each other. You know, usually a girl would give it to a guy or a guy would give it to a girl and it would be like nudge, nudge, wink, wink, ha ha. Um, Cause it was, it's vulgar. <laughs> <laughs> There's also like, you know, especially at that time, not a ton of songs about Conolingus. Yeah, you know, it's, it's different. I mean, nowadays you can't swing a dead cat. Today it's like, oh, you can make it like a whole playlist of just that. You can't swing a dead cat without hitting a song about eating ass. So I mean, this is the this is the year of uh WAP. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny what seemed like so outrageous that like you could only get it on these sort of Samus dot uh you know, tapes that got passed around from person to person. Now you can hear things that are like kind of put it to shame on just pop radio, which is maybe that's a, maybe that's a progress. Victory. I'm calling that progress. Yeah, I think so. I think we can call it progress. 
Yeah. Cons- consolidated. My main association with them was not even ever hearing them. It's just, they were in the spin alternative record guide. And I was, so the thing I, I think I probably went years and years before ever hearing a note of it. So I just had an idea of what it was. And I feel like that's a very nineties uh, and, and prior to that, like eighties and seventies probably as well. Experience of like, I, I've read about this. I don't know what it sounds like, but I think I have an idea. Yeah. Yeah. And, I, I think you know one one interesting thing about consolidated and and the songs that we put on the playlist is that they're not a world apart from the public enemy songs that we put on the playlist that I was happy that we did because yeah let's, let's talk about public enemy yeah. actually this uh, segue into that because that I I some of the feedback I got was people being very happy to hear public enemy in this context and that was all you that was that was your call and I think. Uh, it totally works. It absolutely, there's a kinship, but they're kind of on like different sides of the tracks. Let's say. Yeah. I mean, there's the, 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 the sort of canonical public enemy records went before various laws came in about sampling and, and made them difficult to recreate that kind of sound again was by the production team, the bomb squad, which effectively was an industrial assembly line. It was three dudes who would sit in a row with turntables and just layer shit on top of each other, which is why those records sound so unbelievably dense and raw and confrontational. It's obviously Chuck D's voice is a huge part of it, but it's also the production, which is very, very close to industrial and very, very close to stuff that you would hear from Consolidated or Manifesto. Real bad. Real bad. She might make you forget yours. There's a bottle of the world that describes her character. But her brain's being washed by an actor. And every real man that tries to approach comes a close to comes and gets just like a rope. I don't think I can handle She goes channel to channel. Oh, looking for that hero. She watched Channel Zero. She Jack Dangerous from Meat Beat actually produced a Public Enemy song, I, th- I want to say, on the He Got Game soundtrack. So there was some cross-pollination there, too, which is interesting. And I think... That, that makes a lot of sense, if you're not using the Bomb Squad, just, uh, well, who's similar to the Bomb exactly. Squad? Exactly. And, and the political content was there and was just as sort of outraged as anything else that w- would, would be on this list, you know, with the added, you know... Um, urgency i guess racial dynamic is being black men in america uh and i i I, you know it it really fit right in there i thought you know when you hear it in a row with the other bands that we put on that playlist i think it makes sense yeah absolutely um let's uh move over to the killing joke which i know is a very big deal band to you yeah i'm really into killing joke um by the you know they they went through a lot of phases and I don't know that any of them necessarily are strictly industrial, but they did a lot of, I guess they start more. Like they, they, I think that they're probably most associated with post. Right. Right. And goth. And, but you know, you listen to that first killing joke record, which I wrote up on, uh, for pitchforks list of the best industrial records of all time wound up in the top 10, I believe. And it's proto industrial, you know, there's a lot of songs that just really are basically post-punk songs like change. Um, 
but then there's a lot of requiem where the, the vocals are distorted and there's like this this kind of electronic chirp that goes through it the whole time um again you know they were writing from a perspective of sort of societal decay and i think the iconography that they established on that first record the sort of fuzzy black and white uh you know decayed photo image of these northern ireland uh rioters um with the killing joke name sort of scrawled and kind of spray paint style like that was very very influential not just sonically but in terms of the image that was adopted by a lot of industrial bands going forward i mean you know you can see that kind of that image decay on the land of rape and honey you can see the black and white stuff on gub the first pig face record um you know it, it, it and then they you know they had some songs that like were very big on sort of the metal alternative radio station that we had in New York, Q104.3 in the early to mid nineties, like uh, pandemonium and millennium that were kind of metal songs, but they had a kind of repetitive trance like quality to them that felt more industrial than perhaps it was strictly speaking. Joke's still out there doing it. They were just touring with Tool uh, last year. That's a good fit. That's a good fit. Yeah. I I appreciate Tool uh, doing that for them. And Tool is one of those bands that, like, if you were into industrial, you could listen to Tool that are not industrial. Yeah, we didn't didn't actually use Tool for this playlist because I feel like it just didn't feel like it actually was industrial, but it was adjacent. Yeah, I mean, the aesthetics are, are identical, really. You know, there was, I don't know any industrial fans from when I was in high school who weren't also listening to Tool. And weirdly, Rage Against the Machine, that's kind of how that started too. And again, I think it's because yeah. of the the imagery and the iconography, like uh, that first Rage Against the Machine, you know, with the the typeface and the the black and white photograph of the burning on, on the cover. Um, yeah. Well, it's also the raw yes. aggression, yes. you know? And I, I, this is something I think about a lot is like, you don't actually get as much aggression in music in the past 20 years like it comes in different forms but it's not like in the 90s where it really was like an entire lane of popular music was just like fury very much so and i'm like and popular music i don't mean like just music generally like popular music i miss that i miss that you know uh i because i think a lot of part of it is just, you know, sort of trends and how vocals are delivered and metal music. And it's now like, so, you know, it does a lot for a lot of people. I don't want to run it down. Um, but there was an accessibility even to the most aggressive, uh, like even just like to stigmata, like anyone can sing the verses to stigmata. They're like, 
four lines long. They rhyme stronger than reason, stronger than lies. The only truth I know is the look in your eyes. Like, yeah, the most abrasive elements of that song are yes. hooks. Yeah, it's and the, and then the, the just the sort of caterwauling that Al does. Um, and you know, it was nice to be able to put on a record when you were feeling angry to put on a record that felt angry, you know? Yeah. Yeah. This, this, this is incredibly effective music. It is incredibly cathartic and effective music. And, you know, this going back to nine inch nails, like I, I, to me, if, like in like a lot of like the worst times I can think of in my life, like the, when I'm like, Oh God, what, like, you know, you try to figure out like, what is the thing I need to put on right now? Like, what is the right thing? And I find over and over again, it's the fragile, the fragile will absolutely scratch that itch. Yeah. What a great record that is, man. That's my, yeah, that, that to me, that's their match. Me too. Me too. I felt that way since it came out for sure. Um, let's, uh, pivot to Marilyn Manson. Oh boy. Oh, Marilyn Manson. You know, lately some things have come out about Marilyn Manson that, uh, have sort of soured me on his project, I would say, and on him as a person. Yeah, just, uh, just an incredible amount of evidence that he's a profoundly abusive yeah. person. Um, which fucking sucks for the people that he abused and the people that he kind of sucked into his world. Um, because he was very good at, at creating that world. You know, I mean, talk about an artist that kind of sprang almost fully formed. He, he It all tied, he, you know, with Marilyn Manson, it all came together. The sound, the look the imagery, the lyrical content, the stuff he was playing with um, was really like a bolt out of the blue, I think, in a lot of ways. Um, But in retrospect, it was obvious that someone could fill this lane, this sort of like, I'm going to terrify your parents, I'm going to terrify your teachers, um, which was a big deal. You know, I went to, I went to a Catholic high school and boy, was he unpopular with the faculty. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I remember like my early impression of him, like in the, I guess the smells like children phase, the lunchbox uh-huh. phase of, of really feeling like, Oh, this is music for bad kids. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> like, I, I kept that at kind of an arm's length. Another Nine Inch Nails discovery. I mean, you know, when I went to the first concert I went to ever was Nine Inch Nails at Roseland in New York in May 1994. And it was the very beginning of the Downward Spiral tour, obviously, because they were still touring smaller venues and not yet arenas. Right. They would move to arenas. Yeah, by the end was of that the, tour. I think October, I went to see them at Madison Square Garden, which says a lot about how big Nine Inch Nails got and how fast that happened. But at the time, you know, Marilyn Manson was the opening act and people just, you'd walk around the venue and hear people going, Marilyn Manson, who's she? <laughs> and then, you know, he kind of took the stage and, and it was 
a very, very impressive uh, performance. You know, his movements were so weird and alien and herky-jerky and uncomfortable to look at. And this was before a lot of the kind of the, the grand stage productions that he would do that were very Bowie indebted and had a lot of cross imagery and all kinds of stuff like that. This was just him up on stage writhing around, you know, cutting himself with a bottle, that kind of shit. And it, it really... I guess more yes, Iggy at yes, the time. Though. Yes, Very, very, very Iggy-ish. And, um, you know, he again, this is a case where, like, for a lot of industrial purists, this is not industrial. It's, like, metal. It's shock... Or it's, like... Or it's shock rock. It's Alice Cooper. Um, which, in a way, is selling Alice Cooper short, because Alice Cooper has some pretty badass tunes back in the glam days. Yeah. Um, but Manson... But maybe maybe more shock in the sense of like a shock jock. Maybe it's closer to like if Howard Stern had been a, a rock star instead of a, a right. radio. Right, well, because that was that was also going on at the time. You know, you had all these like miniature moral panics that seem so crazy to think about now uh, in the age that we're living in. But Marilyn Manson. Well, the moral panic comes from a very different direction. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean like you know, right wing moral scolds like Marilyn Manson was was in a continuum with Beavis and Butthead Mortal, Com- Mortal Kombat Howard Stern South Park Eminem you know it was well d- didn't he almost kind of deliberately create this as a reaction to uh you know because he's because he he would emerge around, I guess, 93 or 94, something like that. Uh, maybe even a little slightly before that, just as starting a band. But that is just a couple years after like the full uh, PMRC and Satanic Panic in the late 80s. Like, it's like looking at like, oh, oh, this is what freaks you out. I'm going to do this, but like times a million. The thing that you think like some of these lame bands are, I'm going to actually be times a million. It was definitely a challenge issued to those people specifically. Yeah, yeah that's fair. Um, and it worked, you know, I mean, it, it got him over as they say in wrestling, like he sure was popular and sure was on oh, wow, a lot, a lot of wrestling in Marilyn Manson for sure. Yeah. He was a heel, you know, I mean, he, 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 he played the heel. It turns out he is a heel, unfortunately, but you know, he, the mat, you know, you make the face, and sometimes it right, sticks. Right, and it's and it's one of those cases where, um, you know, he he was an outsized personality in a field where th- there was a certain level of, you know, not to the extent that you had it in electronic music, um, per se, but like there was a, other than like Trent Reznor and Al Jurgensen and really mostly Trent Reznor, there wasn't like a, an industrial rock star, you know, and, and that's the niche that he filled. Hmm. I saw, uh, I've only seen him once and I saw him like relatively recently, I guess probably, I want to say 2016, maybe 2015, something like that. And I saw him, uh, on a double bill with the smashing pumpkins and it was in New Jersey. It was that like an amphitheater in New Jersey. Uh, one of those tours, and I, I went uh, as a as a guest of a friend. I was like, "Oh yeah, I'll absolutely go see this match of pumpkins." And it was a great pumpkin show. The pumpkins were the headliner. Uh, Marilyn Manson went mm-hmm. on first, but they played. You know, it was co-headlining. 
um, <laughs> the, the the people who were there to see Marilyn Manson were extremely obvious. <laughs> and if you saw any kind of hot girl in the audience, they were absolutely there for Marilyn Manson, not the Smashing Pumpkins. Yeah, you know. Yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah. But yeah, it was a thrill. I, I am a very, very big fan of the Dope Show. I'm not a huge Marilyn Manson, but I just truly love the Dope Show. It's a good song. I think that that's what I think that's one of the great songs of the late '90s. It's a very, very late '90s kind of song. I love the sleaze of it. You know, it's a sleazy song. Yeah. Uh, let's 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 switch gears to Revolting Cox. Yay. <laughs> That's not a sentence you get to hear every day. Let's switch gears to the revolting cock, so I'm going to savor it. Yeah, Revco was was one of the many, many ministry side projects, several of which we mentioned earlier. And it was sort of the biggest and had the biggest discography. And, you know, I think it had you know, guy, guy, Luke Van Acker from Front 242 and Chris Connolly from several other uh, ministry side projects and Pig Face and stuff like that. And it was kind of like where they could do stuff that was a little goofier and, and, and less... Um, less of like kind of this monolith that the ministry sound was. There was sort of more variance in the sound. It was a little bit more. Um, this is this is tough. This is amazing to say about revolting cocks, but it was a little bit poppier <laughs> than ministry was. Um, and again, it was you know it, it it was from the band name on down. Part of the appeal of this music was this like, can you top this? It's like, well, yeah, well, I'm listening to a band called Revolting Cox. Doesn't that freak you out? You square? Um, that was a big it's, it's, it's It's edgelord music. It's what? It's edgelord music. Very much so. Very much so. But it was funny. It was where like the sense of humor that uh, ministry records kind of systematically purged over time was able to come through. You know, they did a cover of Do You Think I'm Sexy by Rod Stewart. That is I think that's on there, isn't it? I don't, I think, I think I don't know that we put it place. on. We may have avoided it because it was Yeah. I, or maybe I had it in a draft and I took it out. I can't recall. Yeah, because I think we have Butcher Butcher Flowers Woman in there and Beer Steers and Queers. Uh yeah, that, that one had to be there. That yeah, one's like yeah. Yeah. and uh yeah, so it was it was it was a way for like Al and his friends to like 
you know, crack a few jokes and, and have a good time. Um, you know, it was another industrial super group, which was easy to do, you know, like a lot of these bands were all on the same record label, Wax Tracks Records out of Chicago. So there was a ton of creative cross pollination, a ton of side projects and super groups, like I've been saying, and, and people appearing on each other's records. It was very, very common in a way that like, you know, imagine if like, instead of just Temple of the Dog, uh, there were like, let's say six other side projects that the guys from sound Soundgarden and Pearl jam were involved in. It, it actually, it occurs to me that it's probably more similar to something like odd future or the way there's a lot of rap works. Yeah, that's true. I mean, nowadays you would just call it a feature, right? You wouldn't really think twice about it. Um, yeah. But back then it was, it was unusual. And yeah, yeah it was, I, I guess like this model, or I guess probably more like the, pig face model is probably closer to maybe something like the gorillas. Yeah, that could work. That could work. Yeah. Uh, let's switch over to uh, my life with the thrill kill cult. This is another very horny industrial band, you know, um, very, <laughs> this is just, they had, you know, they had a song called sex on wheels. They had Betty page on one of the record covers. Like, um, you know, it, it fit in that end of things. And also like playing with like satanic imagery and stuff. It was a, one of the more playful industrial bands, I would say. And, hmm. you know, it was, it was, it was definitely a band that I listened to, to impress a girl. So yeah. I live for drugs. back to the the pavement pig head divide like i just is thinking about like the indie rock of this era versus industrial there were indie rock is this like not a horny genre no yeah even like the most horny indie rock is not tremendously horny like like what's the what are the, some of the hornier indie like pixies i would say is a particularly horny indie rock band Sure, it, but in but in ways that are kind of like debased, you know, yeah, like it's there's kind of a, a lot of shame involved, yeah. But also, I think Pixies like have like this kind of they they bleed into goth in these interesting ways. It's like like they can't really present as goth, but they have lots of goth themes. Yeah, I mean, and, 
They were covered. Like, I, 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 mean, I mean, think about it in terms of, uh, you know, who, who's a big Pixies fan? Who's like also one of the biggest goths either of us have ever met is uh, Ali Sheffield, Rob Sheffield's wife, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. And, and Jesus, Mary Chain covered them like. It's there. I don't know, vice versa. The Pixies covered Jesus and Mary Chain. Oh, oh my gosh. I got that back. Yeah, yeah, you got it backwards. They covered head on. That's that, that. That was actually the first Pixie song I ever heard was head on. How about that? Yeah. But yeah, yeah. The in, industrial though, I think is at the core. Is there, there is a, a lusty quality to even like the, the least horny music in this genre. There's still kind of like this, like urgent physicality that can easily just turn to horny at any moment. Yeah. You know, uh, part of it is also how people dressed. Um, it was a sexy genre to be into fishnets and leather and vinyl. Um, yeah. you know, if you got dolled up for an industrial I mean, show, you felt good about yourself sexually. And you could, and you could just head directly to a fetish club from there. Yep. Yep. For sure. And, you know, I mean, it was amazing to go to these shows and see how good looking a lot of these people in the audience were, but it was nuts. It was nuts. Like going to a yeah. nail show or a Lords of acid show or a KMFDM yeah. show and, and seeing people dressed and, up. And indie rock people are attractive, but it's not in the same sort of glamorous, hot way where, you know, they're projecting a sexuality. Right. It's just more, you know. Uh, let's kind of go back in time a little bit. Let's do, I'm going to do my best to pronounce this well. I'm Mr. Trudnubotten. I'm Mr. Zendenneubotten. Um, yeah, I, I can. Yeah, it's, it's a lot of syllables and letters. That honestly was one of the industrial bands that I never got into, and that's part of the story too. Like, I think you you you, you picked and cho- unless you were like had a much more unlimited budget than I did when I was a kid, or were much more um, devoted to a single genre than I was. Like, you you had to kind of pick and choose what bands you were going to get involved in. You know, they're, they're kind of the artiest end of yeah, it too. For sure, for sure. New buildings collapsing, uh, I think is how it translates, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Uh, you know, that was kind of the sound they were going for. And it worked. Uh, uh, let's go uh, kind of a similar sort of name as uh, Nitzer Ebb. Nitzer Ebb, I've gotten more into as time has gone by. Um, I just, you know, they, they were called, I think, EBM was their sort of subgenre, electronic body music. Um and it was meant to dance to and dance fucking hard to like the, the, the really good Nitzer Ebb songs like joining the chant or hearts and minds fun to be had. Um, like whew, those are fucking dance floor fillers. If you're, if you're in the right, if you're at the right place, you know, and have the right people on the dance floor.
uh, local alternative radio station, 92.7 WDRE, they would broadcast from a club every Saturday night and invariably a lost art. Yes. Yes. And invariably you would hear join in the chant, which Sean, did you uh, just the, this, the switches uh, get a little bit off, but um, did you happen to listen to the Dua Lipa uh, club future nostalgia record that came out? No, I haven't heard that. No, that record is aiming to sound like those kind of radio uh, live from the club uh, broadcasts. Ah, fantastic. What yeah, it's, it's 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 truly amazing, and like I, uh, I I like the 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 proper future nostalgia record and the the remix version. That's all like with the had that club vibe. Yeah, it's uh, yeah. I'm just really happy to have Dua Lipa out there. Dua Lipa, who I think could you know you could throw her into an industrial track and she would do well. There's you know there's industrial elements to like a lot of pop artists you know, in over the last however many years, like Gaga absolutely right. will hit the industrial beats. Government hooker by Lady Gaga is a KMFDM song. Like it is a yeah. straight up. That's what, it, that's what KMFDM sounded like right down to the bodyguard that she has. Like, Dance on the ground and his weird. Yes. Oh my god, I I love that bodyguard voice. It is such a like. It, I think he's Dutch. I think that's the accent. It's just a, a very like. Uh, yeah, there, there's something. Yeah, the gods talk about a horny song. That yeah. song just has like a real like bondage vibe to it. And if you listen to that song and then you listen to Light by KMFDM, like I, I, I identical practically. Um, I had to to the point where I had to look up to see who was doing the vocals on Government Hooker to make sure it wasn't Sasha Konietzko from, from KMFTM. I was convinced that she had actually reached out to KMFTM. name of the song is but there is a song on art pop that is a dead ringer it is so nine inch nailsy oh i know uh, the, the, um swine there you go there you go yeah. of course it's, it's called, called swine. of course it's called swine like what's a what's a more industrial word than swine pig face march of the pigs piggy a lot of pigs yeah it's a very pig-centric genre it really was <laughs> Uh, oh, what's the, oh God, what's the name of that ministry record? Like later on, uh, Filth Pig. Filth Pig, yeah. Which is a banger, by the way, and it's very, it's barely industrial at that point. They were very close to being a straightforward metal act. A song that's I think it's like the mid nineties at that point. Yeah, yeah, and it, that that threw a lot of people. But boy, I really like that record a whole lot. I still do. I stand by it. Uh, Skinny Puppy. Another one where it was more like I knew of them. Uh, rather than listening to them in particular. And I think I got my backup about them because they were fairly vocal about feeling that Nine Inch Nails had ripped them off. And I was just not trying to hear that at the time, you know? Yeah. 
in um, kind of doing this playlist, I was uh, in kind of going through their records, and their records go back pretty far back to the early eighties. Yeah, um, I was very impressed by how ahead of the curve Skinny Puppy was in terms of uh, pushing that kind of synth pop, uh, you know, close to Erasure, early Depeche Mode kind of production, just a bit further towards something more abrasive. Yep. You know the influence on Pretty Hate Machine is pretty profound. Yeah, uh, it, yeah. It, it's like I guess like between Skinny Puppy and uh, Pretty Hate Machine is like Vince Clark if he was evil. <laughs> uh, should, should, I, I guess we should mention that time we were at one of our favorite bars and this uh, Vince Clark's is hanging out. That was pretty cool. I got to go up to him and just say, "Hey, man, thanks for the music." And he yeah, seemed very, he seemed very appreciative. As it, as it turns out, Vince Clark lives in my neighborhood. Who knew? Hmm. And he's married to a woman who also knew. <laughs> yes, that, that that probably is the more surprising thing. Let's let's do a, a lightning round on some people who turned up in this. Uh, okay, pop will eat itself. Another Nine Inch Nails record uh, discovery because they were signed to Nine Inch Nails' um, record label. Nothing. Um, they, you know, they had kind of a dance music phase. They were kind of, I think, associated with the micro genre Gribo in the UK. Uh, they had stuff that sounded much more industrial, like this, like some of the things we included. Um, and then Clint Mansell from Populate Itself went on to be a very respected film composer who did the music from, for Requiem for a Dream, for instance, which kind of became iconic and used in a million movie trailers. Uh, so he sort of presaged Trent Reznor's career arc by a little bit. And they have a really, really great song that I love that they did uh, in collaboration with Prodigy called Their Law from Prodigy's record uh, Music for the Jilted Generation. Uh, I was just about to say the Prodigy, so let's let's hit the Prodigy real quick. Yeah. Um, you know, another... I, I like their arc a lot. They started, you know, fairly... You know, just like a rave band... Um, with kind of songs that goofily sampled children's television shows and commercials and things like that. Um, and then just the music slowly and slowly got more intense and then eventually just basically became an industrial band like Breathe and Firestarter. I, people didn't I sling love, that word I around. I love Firestarter so much. So good. So good. People didn't sling that word around a lot 
industrial f- to describe prod- the prodigy. Well, but- that's because they were marketed heavily as an electronica. Right. And, right. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of things that were marketed as electronica could easily be thrown under this umbrella, at least some of the songs. Like, yeah. there's some tricky that could probably fit in with this, though it's more downbeat. Uh, I think maybe some of the harsher Chemical Brothers songs could be thrown in with this. Like, the you know this at least like you know they're they're not tremendously far afield from uh you know thrill kill cult or uh kmfdm yeah some of it is is just context dependent and and that's one of the things that i liked about when we did you know i think some of the bands that we're talking about now they fell outside the time window for the time period that we set for this playlist yeah i think but, didn't we cut off around 96 or so i think that that was the deal i think it might have been even earlier than that it might have been maybe 94 maybe yeah yeah i think so hold on um, yeah it, we did 86 to 94 right so yeah so earlier skinny puppy was not in and then things like that were not in right like i think we i think you know maybe we were kind of looking at is the downward spiral being kind of like the end of a certain line yeah, that's kind of the, 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 the that's that's the crest of the wave, you know. Yeah. It all kind of it all kind of led to that. So prodigy being very very early prodigy. They're just barely making it through basically. Right, right. Um but you know, you, you could put songs uh, several songs by them or by the Chemical Brothers or Aphex Twin for oh, yeah. sure. Um it just it's just Window Liquor I think particularly, yeah. Yeah, and or like some of the stuff from I Care Because You Do has a really kind of kind of sound to it. Um, that that would work, you know. It's just the it's just the context that you're hearing it in. In a lot of the cases, there's no reason why we couldn't throw them in along with Depeche Mode and yeah. along with Public Enemy and along with Information Society and these other kinds of things that yeah you know aren't necessarily considered industrial but sound that way when you put them alongside other industrial songs. Let's hit a couple of those outliers right now. So, uh, Big Black. Big Black. I mean, I don't know. That's more your thing than mine. Yeah. Well, I mean, that is basically like 80s indie rock that is definitely doing an industrial thing. But I'm not sure if they were necessarily slotted in with it at the time. Because it is effectively the same kind of music with harsh drum machines, harsh guitars, harsh everything, basically. Um, yeah, the, the, yeah, the, the, they're uh, kind of a band that's kind of in a no man's land, maybe. Right. Uh, well, that's one of the, I think the useful things about genre is just getting you to think about existing stuff in a new way. Um, yeah, because a lot of these are based on social context. Right, right. Yeah, it's like, who are they touring with? Who do they hang out with? Um, you know, yeah, who are they packaged with to sound like the scene, you know, the clothing in a lot of ways. Like, it, it is, a lot of it is contextually dependent. Yeah. So here's another big outlier is we we used uh, Tori Amos, the song God from Under the Fame. Sometimes you just don't come through. God, sometimes you just don't come through. 
Yet another Trent Reznor discovery for me. Um, yeah, because he sings on Past the Mission, right? Yes, I'm he does. Yeah, yeah. But I God know. is the one that sounds like it's him. It has kind of um, a slinkiness the, to it. That kind of, that kind of like a robotic drum sound to it. And there's weird sounds, and it's about God, and she's like hooting and hollering. And, and you know, God was a very frequent topic of industrial music usually not in a friendly way your god is dead and no one cares yep god sometimes you just don't come through yeah you need a woman to look after you mm-hmm. yeah great song i think that's one of the great tori Amos singles i think it is really uh i mean i think uh, on that record cornflake girl i think kind of eclipses it that's probably that and silent all these years are probably the two songs that people most remember her for mm-hmm um, maybe if you're European, you think of the the dance remix songs that she had. But if you're American, right, those, those, are the, those are the two pickets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, in, in America, like "Call a Light Sneeze" is the bigger one, and "Call a Light Sneeze." If we if we kind of went up to '96, like that would fit in this very well. Yep. And I think that you know, with Tori, um, you know, she dated Trent Reznor, so there was that association there. Uh, God, can you imagine what that couple is like? I can imagine. <laughs> I can, and I have imagined. Um, yeah, that that was that was a super couple. I, I, well, you know, you know, I, I take that back. As a person who is like a, a dark-haired, uh, intense guy, uh, who both of his major relationships are with like uh, intense, pale redheads. I, I yeah, I, 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 I can see you imagining that pretty well. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> but Tori, uh, you know, Tori, yeah. Tori's music was um, it. Not much of it sounded all that industrial, but I think it had a similar kind of emotional palette. It was very horny music, first of all, and um, it could be very confrontational lyrically which i think people don't think about when they think about tori amos but i mean if you listen to it's difficult still to listen to me in a gun which is just which is her acapella song about uh her experience as a rape victim um that's just plopped in there on this record full of absolutely gorgeous piano melodies um in the form of little earthquakes yeah and well even if you just think about like how she performed and the way like she the way she innovated sitting on a chair in front of a piano mm-hmm, mm-hmm. like it's funny in retrospect it's kind of like that the meme of like uh, bisexuals don't know how to sit in a chair <laughs> i don't know if Tori was a bisexual but it absolutely has that kind of like thing going on for it yeah yeah and just you know there was so much crossover between her audience and nine inch nails's audience there was it was yeah, I mean, if if you are like a drama kid in the in the mid '90s, like that is just sitting there waiting for you. There you go. Which I was, you know, yeah. which is exactly what I was. Yeah, I was not a drama kid. I was an art kid, which is kind of a different thing. Yeah, that does that does seem like a different like that's like Sonic Youth is waiting for you. Mm-hmm. 
uh let's see what was uh, we, we've hit a lot of them uh we have some weird outliers in here like we have like a, we have a a, a a remix of the fly by the by u2 we've got uh soft as snow but warm inside by my bloody valentine they're they're songs that like by artists you would not typically put in this but those two particular things fit in very nicely yeah, they have that sonic profile to them. I mean, Soft as Snow But Warm Inside is much more melodic than a lot of the other stuff you're going to find on this playlist. But you have that kind of like this weird sort of seesawing guitar sound. like Yeah, and that, and that really like program sounding beat, though. I actually think that yeah. actually is live drums, but, you know, it's so it, flat it's, sounding. And yeah, um, it sounds uh, it doesn't sound like a world away from Depeche Mode. It sounds like Depeche Mode, but everything's like screwed up. Yeah, yeah. That's fair to say. Uh, oh, one you picked is uh, Bleed Like a Craze Dad by David Bowie from his record Buddha of Suburbia. Very, 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 very deep David Bowie cut. That is a deep cut. Yeah, I, I, I'm i a deep cut David Bowie kind of guy. And like, I mean, if we extended the range of this, I'm afraid of Americans would absolutely be in this. That would be on there and it'd be probably like... Um, like stuff from... Uh, from outside. Yeah. Something like that. You know, because... He was, it took a while, it took a little bit of time for the stuff he was listening to, to manifest itself in his records in a really overt way. Like he was listening to Jungle as early as I think like Black Tie White Noise. Um, Yeah. Well, well, David Bowie, I think like, I think after Let's Dance, he kind of had maybe a solid decade of not quite knowing what to do. Yeah, he was in the wilderness, yep. Yeah, and it's like, he's kind of like fumbling around, figuring out something, and things aren't clicking, and I'm, I imagine he was probably kind of frustrated, because I'm probably on different levels, right? Because on one level, you're like, you're David Bowie, you're used to having things connect with the audience, but it's not, and maybe you feel like uh, it's not connecting with you even like as you're making it uh, i don't know it, it just seems like he was uh there was kind of a eureka moment when he kind of figured out oh i like i think trent reznor kind of really showed him a way forward like specifically yeah. trent and then as he kind of uh got into like things like drum and bass yeah i think trent reznor um was a really inspirational figure for david bowie which is crazy to say i mean obviously the reverse is true too um, but I think he needed to hear the influence of his records that had that no one had really been talking about for a long, long time. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, if it's kind of you kind of think about it in like terms of even just like like songs on scary monsters or like like a lot of the Nine Inch Nails catalog is extrapolated from scary monsters. Yeah. Oh, definitely. From station to station to scary monsters you have the roots of a lot of the stuff that Nine Inch Nails did. And he was never anything but candid about that. And I think hearing him, I think for Bowie, hearing himself reflected back in himself through Nine Inch Nails, which remained, you know, Trent Reznor remained like a touchstone artist that he would cite um, as someone he admired for a long, long time. Even when um, he was presented with people who were kind of riffing on him in a much more direct way, like let's say Mechanical Animals era, Marilyn Manson, which is Marilyn Manson's, that's Marilyn Manson's glam record. It's his diamond dogs, you know, and Bowie was always like polite about that, but he was always very clearly much more excited about yeah. Trent Reznor, who I just think 
Well, I, I think probably because like he sees like the ways like he exists in Trent's world, but Trent is doing like his own thing. Like right. he has his own musical identity. He has his own melodic style. You know, it's like Trent Reznor is a very, very distinct musician. Yeah, I remember um, in the video they released called Closure. That was um, it was two tapes, two VHS tapes. One of which was. Uh, most but not quite all of their videos up to that time because some of them were really unpublishable which if you haven't sought out the broken film cycle by trent reznor and nine inch nails i really recommend it if you want to ruin your day (laughs) (laughs) but um and then the other half was live footage and behind the scenes footage from the downward spiral tour which was just pure chaos um and there was just one scene where like he's backstage and Lou Reed is backstage with him. And it's just like fawning all over him and saying like, it's so fucking smart, man, what you're doing. So fucking smart. And like, to I be think smart, a compliment of Lou Reed, I think is a very big deal. Complimented with a huge ear to ear grin by Lou Reed. Like you could probably count on one hand, the number of people that ever happened to. So yeah, you know, I think a lot of these people were recognizing, um, you know, that Trent was, was, was playing with similar material, but doing it in his own way that reflected some intelligence and creativity. And they appreciated that they responded to it. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good place to stop with this. We've kind of covered the full range, but also, you know, did a whole arc with Trent Reznor specifically. Uh, Doesn't surprise me. Doesn't surprise me knowing me, knowing you. (laughs) Yeah. Knowing me, knowing (laughs) (laughs) Sean, tell people where they can find you. They can find me at SeanTCollins.com. That's my main website. They can find me on Patreon at Patreon.com slash TheSeanTCollins. And if for some reason you want to follow me on Twitter, you can do that too. Twitter slash Twitter.com slash TheSeanTCollins. Um, and so between those three places, you can find pretty much everything I write. Including, I have- including your whole uh, uh, roadhouse. Yes. Yes. I'm very excited. I have a book version of Pain Don't Hurt, which is the series of 365 daily essays about the film, the Patrick Swayze film Roadhouse that I spent uh, all of 2019 doing. Um, that will hopefully be available on sale in the next few weeks. Wow. So that's something to look forward to.